welcome to this episode of RF Industry Icons Podcast. I'm Pat Hindle, and today I'm talking with Benoit Dara, Senior Director for Systems and Projects Antenna-Based Solutions at Rodin Schwartz. Welcome, Benoit. Hello, Pat. Nice to be with you today. Yes, thank you so much for doing this. Uh, you have extensive experience in entrepreneurship, strategic marketing, international sales, business development, standards development, wireless regulatory compliance, antenna measurement and simulation, near field measurement, EMF, and human exposure, just to name a few. So you grew up and studied in France, I believe. You know, what was your educational background and experience like? Yeah, I was born in uh, Paris suburbs, and I spent a good time of my life there. I uh, received education also in that, in that area. Maybe I can just uh, start back from high school. I was very lucky that I was in a great high school in the uh, in Paris uh, called Louis Le Grand, where there's lots of uh, fantastic professors. They really gave me, let's say, a taste for science. And also I was uh, surrounded by lots of great other colleagues in the class and so on. Lots of great discussions. Then after high school, so you know in France we have a kind of a particular system there, um, we have what is called preparatory school, something like this, which prepares us to engineering schools. That kind of replaces the first years of, of university. So I, I took part of this and then passed some contests to join an engineering school called Superlec, where there, let's say the main focus is around electrical engineering and radio frequency engineering. I mean, it's kind of a generalist engineering school, but more famous for those areas. And after this, I decided to continue my studies after engineering school and do a PhD in physics in the University of Paris and Orsay. Yeah. So then where did you discover your interest in electromagnetics? Was that during college or before? Yeah, I think it was already before because somehow when I was studying physics, it was already like these areas where, where really I was interested. You know, I, I always was interested in how energy gets carried from one place to the other. And somehow electromagnetics was a bit of this mysterious thing where you don't see anything, but energy gets transferred. And I was really willing to understand, yeah, how does it get transferred? You know, how can I make use of this somehow or really understand the process? Well, I think a physics background is perfect for that because sometimes I think other people get intimidated by the mathematical complication of electromagnetics. But if you're a physicist, it seems like it kind of makes sense. It does. Yeah, really. And that's, I really needed to enter those uh, detailed understanding for myself. That's always the way I, I think about things. I, I need to understand the details then to get the bigger picture. And so it was for me the right path. And so after university, you know, what was your first job and what was that like? So we, I was very lucky because in France, there was a system that was developed uh, for uh, encouraging uh, PhD studies and so on, which is called CIFR. And in this type of convention, you can actually do a, a PhD thesis in collaboration with a company. So actually my first job, I was really hired by uh, the company that was Sagem uh, Communications back then. So doing mobile phones and among other things, but I was in the mobile phone development group and I was actually financed by Sagem and by the government to make my PhD thesis somehow on the topic that would be of interest for, for the company. So that was my first job. 
And I was part of the Antenna uh, development team for mobile phones. And yes, and studying things that were related to these antenna developments as well in my PhD thesis. Wow. So you went all the way back to that for antenna and measurement and exposure, all that. That's that's interesting. You've been in that field the entire time. And yes. so I think you co-founded Art Phi. And how did you come about doing that? Yeah, so actually, when I was working on my on my PhD thesis at Sagem, one of the big topics of the thesis was to uh, help accelerate uh, the process of, of developing antennas for mobile phones by, you know, kind of finding first-time right antennas in certain configurations, and especially looking at finding the right trade-off between how much power you actually deliver to the network and then, yeah, the overall over-the-air performance versus how much power you actually dissipate in the human body or in the human head. And so trying to find antennas that would be designed such that you would actually increase the power delivered to the network and decrease as much as possible the power delivered to the user. Uh, and when doing that, I found like actually, well, there are challenges in antenna development, but most of the challenges come up with the fact that somehow you are trying out some antennas to optimize something and then you eventually need a, a really long time to get uh, some feedback on what you've developed uh, either due to measurements or due to simulation times that were at this time much longer and so i felt like well you know there might be a way to accelerate some of these measurements and i was especially looking at sar specific absorption rate measurement that was always like the bottleneck, you know, you were optimizing something and then you needed to wait for three weeks until you get a result on, well, how good is your antenna design in terms of SAR? And so, yeah, I felt there might be a way, a more clever way to do these measurements and much faster and yeah, and be faster in finding the right antenna for your product. So that's where it all started. Yeah, I do remember you had that neat looking mannequin that you could, um, test right on and is that what sped it up is that you could do your tests yourself or yeah yeah exactly so it's uh, the idea that was pretty simple was like you know when you were looking at the SAR systems they were moving a probe several positions to get the field in the mannequin and that took really this movement and acquisition time took really you know tens of minutes even hours if you would go through all the configurations and so the thought was like well maybe we just don't move all of these probes we, uh, or we don't move this particular probe, we create an array of probes and then just sweep them electronically. But obviously that would come with some limitations. So you could not have all the degrees of freedom. So the question was really, you know, how to then have this fixed array of probes that would sweep hyper fast, but then you have reduced degree of freedom. So how do you reconstruct at this point where you actually have not measured? And so all of these ideas came. And on top of that, obviously, I was always interested in entrepreneurship. So it looked to me like a very, yeah, it was like, maybe that's a way for me, you know, to move forward in my career, try this path of entrepreneurship. Now that I get this idea of a really cool technology and I sense that there is a market for this. So maybe I should give it a try. And so you gave entrepreneurship a try. So what led you to um, leave ArtFi and come to Rodian Schwartz? Oh yeah, that's that's also a long and complex story. I could give you the full span and we could spend, I don't know how many hours and we'd need probably lots lots of beers to cover that. 
But in general, I would say, you know, Artfly was a really great experience. We started only three people, three colleagues or four, let's say even more or less right from the start. And then we, you know, stayed like this uh, at a small scale for a while. And suddenly we get more funding and chances to develop. The company after a few years grew up to, to 40 people and we were really bringing the technology to the right level. And also the company was becoming commercially more successful, uh, but we needed really uh, funds to develop to the next level and especially, you know, be able to cover new measurement needs and yeah, uh, bring the right accuracy in that frequency range and this frequency range. So you always come up with a sort of MVP, you know, kind of product. And then you need to, uh, you, you get the feedback from all the customers because well, before you get that product, you don't get all that feedback. They need to see something and touch something. And once you get all that feedback, you realize, oh, maybe, you know, in the design of this equipment, I missed something here and missed something here and you need to optimize. And that's where you start to need money to fund all of this. So I got, um, I got investors on board and I would say uh, I was a really complete novice in the field of getting investors on board. and and handling a whole company. And yeah, it turned out that all the people that went on board, I and, and them maybe had different views on the, how the company uh, would have to evolve, let's say. And it came to the point where I thought that our views would maybe be difficult to uh, kind of converge. So it came as a natural uh, end, let's say that, yeah, maybe I'm not the right person anymore to handle the company in the way that it's that some some of the colleagues and some of the board members wanted to evolve. On the other hand, I was in very close discussions with Roden Schwartz because, yeah, there were lots of synergies that were possible with my company and and Roden Schwartz at the time. You know, measurement instruments that need to go together with a SAR testing equipment and so on. And we were discussing how to grow those synergies. And so finally, when this decision or this like, yeah, this end of me in Artfi came up. My first thought that was like, oh, I should contact some of the people I got to know from Rodenschwarz because I believe we we had lots of things that we could do together and maybe they are interested to that I work with them, uh, to work with me in the future that I join them. And so, yeah, I called these, these colleagues and they said, hey, actually you're calling at the right time because... Uh, We'd like to develop much more in the electromagnetic measurement system activities in Roland Schwartz, especially on the OTA side. And we think that we, you could be a perfect fit. So let's, you know, let's have some interviews. And, and then, um, yeah, it, it was a match. And I know you really enjoy it working there now. What are some of the advantages of working at Roland Schwartz? Oh, yeah. I mean, uh, well, first of all, it went from, you know, a very small scale, like, 40 people to a company, company yeah. to now 13,000 uh, of people. And so you have all of these capabilities suddenly also. Rodent Schwartz is really like the radio frequency company, right? In terms of test and measurement. So for me, it was like a sort of a, a huge play field to come and join Rodent Schwartz, a place where you can express your creativity and you have excellent engineers all around and you have also the money to fund all of these ideas you know you know the Roden Schwartz motto right make ideas real and that's really what I could experience from the start you have ideas 
well, we have lots of people that can support you, great factories that can produce your ideas. We have the money to test them and try them out. And yeah, and we can make products out of them. So, I mean, that was fantastic. Yeah, and that that has been a great journey so far. Almost Yeah, you six were the years. you're the you're the kid in the candy store. <laughs> kind of, yeah. So you are an inventor. I think you have about 50 patents. You know, what type of inventions <laughs> have you made and what are some of the most major ones in your memory? yeah, let's say, uh, well, connecting with the question before, I can say that uh, joining Rollins Farm really boosted my uh, my creativity, or at least I felt that I I had all the tools here. to, you know, bring those patents to life as well. So that generated even more ideas. In general, the field of activities where I patented are all around electromagnetic, whether it's electromagnetic measurements or simulations, antenna designs, or yeah, different kinds of electromagnetic designs. Among the major inventions, um, I would say there are um, a few that I could name. There is at least the ones that are publicly available. The multi-reflector uh, compact antenna test range, I think that's one of the, the really cool one. Nobody dared in the past. I mean, it was not really a tremendous inventive step, but somehow nobody really dared to make a compact range with uh, multiple reflector and feeding systems all together to create multiple angles of arrival. And that was basically because I think that was also our reaction when we first thought of that. You know, you could think like, oh, you're going to create an echoic chamber instead of an anechoic chamber. You're, you're putting so much metal in there that it's never going to work and you're going to have interferences here and there. But actually, we realized that these reflectors really uh, act like spatial filters somehow. And if you put them in a nice way, then you would actually not have so much crosstalk between all of them. And you could actually control that pretty efficiently. So that was a really good one. Another one is this. what we call offset correction or parallax correction uh, invention where, uh, you know, I realized that when you are actually uh, having pretty large devices in small uh, anechoic environments, then you would normally test them. The device is large, so you would put the device on the positioner and normally the geometric center or the, the weight center of the device would be lying on the positioner. But eventually the antenna would be off from the center of coordinates. And because of this, that would create really like pretty big errors in your measurement. So you imagine your device and then your antenna being offset and your probe coming around. And actually uh, when the probe is coming around, sometimes the probe is closer to the antenna on the test. Sometimes the probe is coming, uh, is going further away. And so you would have sort of modulations more or less in your pattern that would really affect your accuracy. There are also some more problems relating to these offsets. And so I found a way to correct these offsets that works really in over-the-air mode. So it means without phase information from the, the field, from the measured field, and working both in TX and, and RX. And that, I think, is can be applied quite nicely to very large device testing, like when you do full vehicle OTA measurements. And there are some more I could spend, you know, <laughs> quite some time that depends on if you want me to come to keep going on some of these inventions i can go <laughs> well, I actually have one in particular I wanted to ask about, you know, you, one of your discoveries was that antenna measurements can accurately be made really close in regions where people didn't think you could do that before. Can you tell us how you came up with that and exactly how it works?
Yeah, so actually this is kind of connected to this story about uh, offset correction. Uh, I was challenged by a customer. Actually, that was the, the thing. So the, the customer came to us and they had a, a device to measure and that device was pretty large and the antenna was, yeah, was nicely offset. So imagine like a computer and then you would have the base of the computer lying on, on, on the positioner and then the antenna would be somehow somewhere uh, up in the frame, you know, of the, of the screen. And you would probe around and you would have really uh, large deviations in your pattern compared to what you would expect from simulations, for example. And the customer was telling me, yeah, it, it's a near field effect. Uh, you, the computer is, the overall computer is radiating and so on. And, and so we, we need to be much further at much further distance to measure that. And then we would have reliable results. And I was objecting. I was saying, no, I don't think it's a near field effect. I don't think the, the whole computer is a radiator and your antenna is rather small. I think the problem is more coming from the offset. And so if we could, you know, correct that offset, and we would be fine. And I still feel that your distance here is, is actually good enough. And so he asked me, well, prove it to me, basically. And so I started to, you know, come around all of this. That's actually, I got then a couple of, of ideas in mind. So offset correction, as well as thinking of how far, you know, we should test and so on. And, you know, I came back to uh, some of the publications that I was having in mind, especially in some fundamental results coming from a professor in Nanjing University called Ven Gei, where he was demonstrating a fundamental limit of gain over quality factor for antennas. And I felt like, okay, maybe I could use that limit to derive something about, you know, if I think about all of these spherical modes that the antennas generate, perhaps in the way an antenna is actually developed, you, you develop it to actually optimize that gain over Q uh, because you want to cover a, a rather large bandwidth and a rather high gain at the same time. And these kind of two things oppose more or less. So you would limit the number of modes you would excite, number of spherical modes you would actually excite, physically excite. And if I would know what is the highest order of modes that my antenna is physically exciting, then, because I know those modes have properties that they, you know, they converge to far field depending on how high their order is, then if I could extract the quantity, then I would be able to understand, well, how early somehow in space you have the far field convergence. And then looking into that, I started to realize, well, this the convergence is happening at a much, let's say, shorter distance than the front offer distance when you look at these modes. And so... Would I be able to kind of put some theory around that? Would I be able to, you know, simulate that? Would I be able to measure that with real devices? And all of this was coming, was converging. And that's where the, this whole theory, you know, around shorter, what we call now effective fossil distance came up. My answer was very long. I'm sorry, Pat. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's perfect. You have to explain it thoroughly. So what implications does that have? Are we able now to make, you know, test chambers smaller just based on this discovery? Yes, kind of. So, well, a very clear use case is full vehicle automotive OTA testing. So, you know, cars are really big devices, right? And you have antennas all over the cars. You probably don't want to have a range where you want to apply a from no fur distance kind of thing. And you want to say, now I want to encompass the whole car. So 
you know what uh, what actually came up out of this is that well first of all maybe the whole car is not the radiator that's for sure and so there might be an area of the car that radiates that couples with the antenna that's not going to be the whole car and then can i fit this area which radiates within the quiet zone of a reasonably sized chamber and that's actually what can be done throughout let's say through for these discoveries we realize that yeah maybe we can have a range that is only like 4.5 meter giving you only 4.5 meter range length or six meter range length and gives you a reasonable quiet zone do OTA tests with such large devices. Obviously, you still have this offset correction problem that you need to apply, but because my actually my two kind of inventions came at the same time, those two really bring a solution to that problem. So you have a large device, you have antennas which are offset, you want to minimize the size of the chamber. So that's the front offer versus effective far field distance part. And then the large device is center in your uh, system, but the antenna is off center. So you'd like to correct this. And actually, yeah, you can apply those findings to that and, and create rather, yeah, compact chambers for such large devices that enable still very accurate OTA testing. So yeah, it comes to practice, I would say. So we've talked a lot about your technical talent, but I also hear you're uh, very versed in musical area. Can you tell us, you know, how did your musical talent develop and what do you uh, do with that? Yeah, well, actually, when I was young, uh, I always loved music. That was uh, something for me, uh, I don't know, part of my everyday life. And I especially, since primary school, I, I, got, I became a fan of you know, very talented singers that were also great showmen. So Michael Jackson was definitely, for me, like one of the first, I don't know, big shocks when I saw how this guy could sing and dance together and everything and the kind of shows he was able to put together. And and then Freddie Mercury as well. It was uh, the other, you know, for me, big, in, big influence back then. And I wanted to try singing like those guys. Obviously, I could never achieve what they were achieving, but... I like that they were frontmen and and great singers, and so I gradually started to sing. And so more and more, I I don't know, I went into rock music, and then you know, as a as a logical step, when you are in in rock singing, you also feel like I'd like to learn guitar. So I started to learn guitar. I got my first electric guitar when on my 18th birthday, and I trained and I tried uh, as much as I could. I joined some bands and rapidly I realized I was better at singing than I was than, than at guitar playing. So I, in my bands, I focused more on, uh, on singing and yeah, after some time, I, I really, you know, developed some skills. I would say in there, not as great as I was wishing. I was always, you know, willing to do more and, and be better, but yeah, that's how it came for me. Yeah. So, yeah, you said you were a part of a few bands. Can you tell us about those? And, you know, did you travel anywhere and play in any concerts, that type of thing? Yeah, I actually experienced different bands with different styles. Let's say most of the time was more in rock music, but uh, some kind of uh, fusion rock, jazz, funk, uh, rock fusion, then moved into more progressive rock and progressive metal some of like Genesis influence and then Pink Floyd and later more Dream Theater and uh, Tool, all those kinds of bands. 
I even went into industrial metal, so more like much more hardcore things like yeah. Ministry or uh, Rob yeah. Zombie or this kind of stuff. I have lots wow, of you really have progressed up the chain there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, really. And yes, with some of the bands, we, we traveled a bit. I mean, mostly touring in little concert halls or uh, yeah, music bars or small uh, facilities where we could play. One of the bands was a bit more popular, especially this actually industrial music band. And we started to tour into bigger halls. I even uh, traveled a bit. We went, one of my best memories when was when we traveled to Geneva. There is still a hall there called uh, Luzine. Uh, I think capacity around a thousand people uh, in the audience. That was one of the bigger ones that we did. We were the support band for another band back then. I think the band was named Punish Yourself. So you imagine <laughs> quite a program. And, and we were, as a support band, you know, we were doing the opening. And so we had to be there quite early. And we realized we would have no time between when we arrive and the rehearsal and then uh, really the concert. So that band, I had really a very strange makeup to put on. I was like a sort of futuristic zombie, kind of a Mad Max uh, sort of stuff. <laughs> And so we thought we don't have time to paint ourselves in between the rehearsal and the concert. And so we should, you know, right from the start, before we start travel from, from Paris in the, in the tour bus to Geneva, we should paint ourselves. And so I was actually completely painted and everything and crossed the, the Swiss border, uh, painted with a really strange look. <laughs> they let you in. <laughs> and obviously we got border control and I can... I always could remember the, the Swiss police, uh, border police uh, face when they saw all of us like this. We had a really long passport check, I can tell you. Uh, <laughs> I'm going to have to look up some pictures or videos on that stuff. Yeah, if you can find them, I, I keep them really well hidden. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, you have like an unstoppable desire to invent and discover, you know, where does all this creativity come from with you? It's like really a drive, I can tell. Yeah, for me, really, uh, creating is like breathing, you know, it's, I can't stop. And I, I think it, it, it always comes from an attitude first. Uh, since I was a kid, I, I was always thinking for every single problem I see, there is always a better solution to that problem. And obviously, sometimes you just don't have time to look at this solution or you think it's not worth it because in any case, the solution that's already there works. And is maybe what people need, but sometimes you realize, okay, well, people are not satisfied with that solution. And I'm always thinking, you know, yeah, I'm sure there is a better solution. It just needs to take time to think about it. Also, what I realized is that there's a lot of silo thinking everywhere. So, and, and that's kind of normal. That's a, a normal trend. You are, you know, belonging to a certain field of expertise. And in this field of expertise, you are taught some ideas in a certain way, and that creates your framework for, for thinking. And, and sometimes it's hard to get outside of this framework. And so from my side, I'm always interested in, you know, trying to hear from people who are co coming from a different background, maybe a different industry, maybe a different, uh, they solved a similar problem in a different field. And so when I'm listening to that, very often I get ideas, you know, I'm like, hey, what if what this guy did in, I don't know, processing of data in chemistry, 
could apply in processing of data in electromagnetics or uh, now I'm a bit going a bit far because even sometimes it's it's even more connected fields like oh in the radar industry that's also lots of electromagnetics people are are solving this problem like this but in the wireless communication we're not even looking at this problem from that angle so what if we would connect the dots you know and yeah look at the the problem through this angle so very often that's the way it comes and and I don't know I'm I'm really a sponge so I take everything and Sometimes I spit out uh, new ideas. That's more or less how it, how it goes. <laughs> You're good at connecting the dots. Yeah, I would say that that's maybe one of my, my strengths. Yeah. And so what do you see as the future of measurement technology in the next decade? You know, what are some of the big developments you think will happen? Well, uh, that's a very vast question. And I believe, again, lots of dots must be connected. Well, maybe here I sound like a like a broken record because it's very often that I speak about over the year, even today in our discussion, I I said uh, OTA or over the year at least uh, ten times, <laughs> most likely. But I think it's kind of a natural thing that you know wireless communications they are pervasive. Connectivity is everywhere. Every object is becoming connected, and the integration of the electronics is also becoming, you know, like more and more. So people want to use smaller space to have lots of wireless communication technologies being supported, lots of different devices, lots of electronics collaborating. And so ultimately there's gonna be a lot more needs for over the air tests. So I think like everything that we, we were used to do conducted in the past, lots of these things will need to have the air interface in there for characterization needs in the future. So that's a trend we already saw in 5G and as a trend that's going to continue. Now, having said that, we've over the air testing the topic of measurement uncertainty comes to a bigger level because when you're you know going through over the air measurements, then you're typically piling up uncertainty. And there's a number of fields where measurement uncertainties I think is going to become a critical topic. So lots of the of the measurement technology in the future, in my opinion, will have to focus on finding ways to reduce measurement uncertainty. Like you see now in sub-terahertz kind of communications. I mean, how are you going to calibrate those test systems? How are you going to make like get measured power to a, a really high accuracy with which kind of devices and setups? Uh, in, in the end, you know, base station makers or access point makers or network operators will not accept that you tell them, hey, you get a device measured with 7 dB uncertainty. And then the network operator thinks, okay, how am I going to plan for my network, you know, with 7 dB uncertainty? Do I need to put 7 dB more or 7 dB less base stations here and there, you know? The cost factor will be huge. Uh, yeah, the, if you go plus or minus, it can be a big uh, range. Yeah, it's a big range. Yeah, so measurement uncertainty over the year are definitely two big things that measurement uh, technologies, you know, and the way we need to think about them in the next decade, we will need to think about this. Testing complexity and multiplicity of test scenario is also something. I mean, right now you have lots of devices that combine again so much electronics so you need to test so many different 
use cases and intended condition, intended use conditions, unintended use conditions, uh, whatever, you know, unintended emissions. So ultimately, at some point, if you, as a manufacturer, want to bring a device to the market, the testing complexity will be so large that your time to market will blow up to an unrealistic level. And so there is a need for smarter testing solutions that kind of reduce the testing time, you know, factoring artificial intelligence in that picture. Like how do you, how are you able to decide, oh, my device is good enough based on maybe a reduced set of test cases, because you would have eventually millions of test cases that you could cover, but you don't have time for these millions of test cases. So you'd rather make your decision early enough that you don't wait for this this whole time. So yeah, I think that's another trend, smarter and faster kind of measurement technologies, yeah. Great. Well, thank you, Benoit, for uh, talking with me today about your career and experiences in the industry. It's been a very interesting discussion. You are a RF industry icon with your extensive experience in test and measurement industry and entrepreneurship. So to our audience, you can find more podcasts at podcast.microwavejournal.com. Thanks for listening.